Hello, I'm Simit Bose. Welcome to the Net Hero podcast. My gosh, we're whistling our way towards March, aren't we? In fact, the daffodils have popped up early. Uh, there's a story we did actually a couple of weeks ago on Future Net Zero about how plants are being deceived uh, with climate change flowering early. Well, it's happening in my garden right now. Maybe it's happening in yours. Um, today, we're going to have a very interesting talk about kind of batteries and how we recycle them and how we make sure that we're not overtly causing more damage as we try and electrify our fleets. But I'll get on to that in a second. A couple of things that have caught my eye. Uh, first of all, a very interesting story that you may have missed, but um, the boss of the IEA, uh, Fatih Birol, and various people who were behind you know, the Paris Agreement have all said that the UK should hold fast on its net zero goals. The reason they're worried is because this sort of group that's been set up uh, by some Tory MPs, uh, which has been looking at the whole kind of net zero policy side of things. Um, they're called the Net Zero Scrutiny Group. And what's happening, you couldn't have missed the headlines. A lot of people are saying, the reason we're paying so much for our energy is because we've got all these policies in and, you know, we need to just go back to doing much more using oil and gas, fracking and all of that. Now, what Fatih Birol and, you know, the uh, the sort of people in behind the Paris Agreement, including Lawrence Jubana, the diplomat who kind of helped organise it, they're all saying, can you please hold your line? You know, these claims are responsible, they're used to attack public support, and we need to keep going on this. Now, they are right, they are definitely right, that we should not, uh, you know, defer from the, the net zero pathway. But I also have some empathy with this group of Tory MPs because this is the real truth of this. We have to make sure that as we do this, we're not really hurting the most vulnerable in society. And there's a recent price rise, there's things that are coming in April, the way that the cost of living has gone up, the cost of energy does affect people. So they, they are right, the net zero scrutiny group, to raise it. But, you know, the direction of travel for net zero, obviously, I'd say that I think is the right direction. What we've got to do is make sure that we have enough safety caveats in to make sure that as we do this, we don't leave people behind. And that means planning. That means planning for how you use what gas resources you have. It means planning about when to use wind and solar. Not that you've got to stop these things, but they've got to be used better. And the other thing we're so terrible at is energy efficiency, which also has to be included in this mix. And that's one of the other stories that I think you should have a look at, which was uh, looking at the interwar homes. And I live in one of those homes, homes built between sort of 1918 and sort of 39, 40. And just 10% of those have uh, an EPC, an energy performance certificate above band C, right? And the reason is because they're old. You know, my one's old. They were built with coal fires and chimneys and they could be retrofitted. And in fact, the Royal Institute of British Architects has said we should do that. We should go on a mass retrofit of about three million homes to try and tackle the fuel poverty and reduce carbon emissions. And this is something I think we really must do. I've been calling this for ages because we can try and build our way out of it. We can electrify, we can build more wind turbines, we can go for nuclear, all of these things. But the amount of energy that leaches out of our houses, out of our windows and doors, you know, 
we're probably one of the worst countries, particularly the latitude we live at, for, for having proper insulation and proper ways of having energy efficient homes. And we're not going to rebuild these homes, okay? You can't go and knock down the houses in my street or all around the country. You know, they're decent houses. But what they do need is they need a lot more work to make them much more energy efficient. And I think retrofitting is something that has to be done. And that is where we should be investing. So two things I think worth looking at. Uh, the other thing is obviously the big zero show. I'm sure you've heard me every week and I'll keep hammering it in. You must be there June the 21st at the uh, Coventry Building Society Arena, which is up in uh, Coventry. It used to be the Rico Arena, so it's quite easy to get to. Uh, we have launched some more speaker names. You'll see them on the site. So go to uh, bigzeroshow.com. Uh, delighted to say some new partners have come on board and sponsoring some of the events that we've got on. We'll have talks around uh, energy, data, uh, retrofitting, carbon reduction, financing net zero. If you're in the energy space, if you're just interested in net zero, come along. It's a free event to do register now. Okay, enough of the selling, enough of the pushing. It's not a sell. You should be there anyway. Let's talk about what today's podcast subject is and that is batteries and batteries are our future we know it because we can see it with cars we know it because we can see what we're going to do with energy storage and i caught up with uh robin brundle who is the chairman of technology minerals now they're a very interesting company um, robin's the the brother as you'll hear of martin brundle the formula one driver and he's from the electro sort of automotive world he worked on Formula E but what he's working on now this company is trying to recycle our batteries how we make sure that we use these batteries so that they can continue which is the big issue about battery technology how much can we recycle what can we do with the rare earth elements that are in it how do we make sure we dispose of the chemical nasties in the right way so they're working on some very interesting projects to try and get recycling up to sort of 70, 80, sometimes 90%, so that we actually have a far better way of getting to net zero and making sure that we have a supply chain for our batteries that is not only reasonable and cheap, but sustainable and good for the planet. Have a listen. So welcome to this episode, and this is a very interesting topic, a topic that is close to my heart, as you well know, if you've been listening to my podcast about batteries in EVs in particular. So my EV, which is new, I got it only a few months ago, you may have seen my range anxiety, my fears with it, the fact that there was all these cock-ups with the internet of things, but it always got me thinking, which was really about this battery technology and where are we going? We all know that this is going to be the decade of the battery. It's going to be everywhere. It's going to be not just in our cars, it's going to be in energy storage systems, it's going to be in plants, it's going to be everywhere. Wherever there's technology, you'll see batteries. And what are we going to do with you know, there are lots of controversies about how we find the minerals for them, how we dig them up, how we use them, their effectiveness, but also what do we do with them at the end of their life? And that's a, the subject of today's Net Hero podcast. I'm delighted to say joining me is Robin Brundle, who's the chairman of Technology Minerals. Robin, how are you? I'm pretty chipper, thank you. And how are you? Yeah, good, good. Um, let's just do a little bit about your background. Now, uh, people may know the name Brundle, 
uh, I, I never like to bring in cyber sibling rivalry, but you, you are the brother <laughs> of uh, the, the racing car driver, correct? Uh, that's correct, yeah. So there's no rivalry. We're, we're best of friends and always have been and yeah, very lucky to have that uh, very close relationship. And uh, so, of course, by nature, uh, I have a lifetime in high-level global motorsport and also uh, high-level automotive, uh, global automotive as well, uh, as well as dealing with a number of uh, new technology uh, transitions from uh, space defence into automotive Formula One uh, and vice versa. Your background, you're being very humble, but you did racing yourself, didn't you? I did, yeah, through a long time ago now. I'm afraid the story's <laughs> got a little bit longer. Uh, the fish gets bigger, of course. Uh, but yes, it was. It was uh, late 70s through the 80s and into the early 90s. My brother Martin is uh, three years older than me. I've had the harder life, of course, which is why it looks the other way around. Uh, but uh, in all seriousness, no, Martin got into Formula One uh, first. And one of us had to step back and build the family business, uh, which we very successfully did. So uh, always been very supportive of each other. So in terms of kind of cars you know this is the thing that you know you look at where we are now and people have always said formula one was you know designed something oh it's just for motorheads you know it's all about sport but actually so many technologies that were developed in racing have made their way into the car industry haven't they over the decade yeah very much so you know and formula one still has that halo of technology you know and it doesn't matter which industry you touch that's high tech um you know it all heads towards Formula One, and often Formula One is a driver to, to drive a lot of these technologies. And, you know, I had the privilege of working with Lord Drayson to put together the whole proposition for the FIA, the governing body of motorsport, for what you now know as Formula E, um, yeah. back yeah. 10, 11, 12, 12 years ago. So I had the pleasure of doing that. But of course, you know, back then the battery technology just wasn't as, as robust as it is today. And we ended up making sure that we didn't compete on the same tracks as fossil fuels because long straights at Silverstone uh, really weren't helpful to, to making battery performance or longevity of battery performance. And so that's why uh, Formula E initially uh, has gone the way it has into city circuits so that, the, yeah. that there was no direct, com uh, direct comparison. And with Formula E in existence and you know, having done well to go through the challenges over the last 10, 12 years, it would be very interesting to see where Formula One goes with hydrogen uh, technology, which would be its natural leapfrog, perhaps might be as early as three to four years, but probably more likely six. Yeah. And, and that, this thing about, you know, the technology from racing moving on, you know, I've been fortunate enough when it was in Battersea, I saw Formula E. It was really it was like, yeah, these weird little noises. But the, the, the technology, even a few years ago, you know, the whole idea of the regenerative braking, all of this stuff that has come through. And, you know, for people who have not driven electric cars, it is quite a weird sensation that there's silence. Yes, we get that. But when you drive them, as you take your foot off what would be the gas, probably can't even call it the gas anymore now, foot off the accelerator, yeah. they, they sort of charge. My little car shows me that it's in the charge mode and all of these technologies. Um, yep. Where would you say the state of kind of electric vehicles are? Because... Let's be honest, at present, therefore, dare I say, people who've got some money, people who can afford to have a drive, there's all the charging infrastructure. And also, let's be honest, they are still, and I've had it myself, they're not the sort of thing you can jump in and just go, right, I'm going to go from London to Newcastle, it's going to be easy. There's, you've got a factoring, you're changing your life in terms of charging. But would you say we're in a, a good place now as an industry, and you've been in, as you say, automotive for 
pretty much your whole life, that you'd say, you know what? We can see that EVs as a mass form of transport for most of us can work. Um, yes is the answer, the short answer. It's a very complex answer that's driven, in my opinion, or has been accelerated by the Paris Agreement and more lastly the COP26 uh, that was very much to the fore last year uh, with the wealthier nations around the world pushing to help support that uh, climate change agenda because the electric for all of the benefits that hydrogen has, the electric is the only option out there, credible option for volume transport at cost, relatively cost effective prices to be able to head anywhere near towards that one and a half degree climate change and the COP26 agenda, um, which personally as a company we support uh, very much uh, and as an individual I support too. So by, uh, by default, uh, there is a transition now away from fossil fuels. Uh, yeah. And I believe that within two, probably three generations, you will start to see electric and hydrogen um, either as a liquid or as a fuel cell uh, technology become the new petrol and diesel that we all see today. Now, it doesn't mean to say that necessarily the, uh, you know, the uh, internal combustion engine will disappear completely. Um, it will take a long time for that to happen. Um, but I do believe that, uh, you know, our grandchildren will live in a world where uh, petrol and diesel is electric and hydrogen. And, you know, the fears now have already been uh, eroded on range anxiety. Uh, many of the cars out there now are doing in excess of 250 miles uh, on a charge. And many of them can uh, have an 80% charge within uh, 16 to 20 minutes. Um, and let's be frank, not many of us would want to drive any more than 250 miles in any one stint without having a break of some sort. So, you know, it, it really isn't the social problem that was perceived, uh, say, 10 years ago, or even three years ago, frankly, because the technologies have moved on a pace. So I, mean, um, I, 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 I agree with you in some ways, but I also disagree because I've had the personal experience where I've charged my, I've got a Peugeot uh, e, E2008, and what, what I got was I charged it up and it said 180 miles. I went to Coventry and it was only sort of, what, 85 miles from where I am. But when I, you know, traffic stopped still, the, the windscreen wipers going because it was raining, all of that, the heater was going. And I found that I actually didn't have that much charge left and I had to stop and charge. So sometimes I wonder whether what they say and what you actually get in real world conditions is still quite a measure of difference. Uh, it shouldn't be. Um, to be frank, there's a lot of regulation around how they measure these things. And, uh, you know, if, if your car had got a much longer range and it isn't delivering it, then I would suggest you perhaps challenge the manufacturer or your dealer uh, as to round to the performance of your particular car. You, you think um, it needs a tune-up, the battery? <laughs> uh, well, it... it, it <laughs> Uh, you know, I mean, we, it's an awfully lot more complicated than this, but of course, it, perhaps it might just need to control, alt, delete and see how you get on. But I would have a look at that, you know, no, and, no. Um, yeah. but, but even, even if it's 200 miles, you know, most people wouldn't want to drive much longer than that no. uh, before they break and uh, before they break, uh, you know, to have a rest or, or um, use facilities or whatever. And of course, uh, you know, the, the stat these days are that there's now more than double the power points to petrol pumps and you are reportedly any ever no more than 25 miles away from a charging station and yeah. you know one of the reasons i believe that the automotive companies 
have gone for this relatively low distance, if you like, you know, the yes. 250 miles, yes. is that, that in Britain, the average journey is 82 miles per oh, day, no. according no, to absolutely. the SMMT. So, you know, at the end of the day, if you're going to, if, if all of, most of the week your journeys are starting and finishing at home and you, or the office or whatever way around you do it and you've got charging points, then, yes. uh, you know, you're there. But the other thing to remember, of course, is cost because, you know, a, a car manufacturer, if you take the internal combustion engine and drivetrain that's required to, to get the energy, if you take that out and put a battery pack in, it costs them about two and a half times. So a classic mid-range really? family car, yeah. A classic wow. mid-range car would cost a manufacturer, a volume manufacturer, about two and a half thousand pounds, whereas the equivalent of electric at the moment is about eight thousand pounds. So you'd think you know, it'd be the other way around because you're replacing all these mechanics and the drive. You just think, hang on, I'm just shoving in a battery and I've I've just got an axle and, and, uh, and... <laughs> <laughs> you've you've obviously got this mental picture of a pack of triple A's going in. I do. Haven't you? You know, it's, <laughs> it's not quite like that, but. Uh, uh, yeah, so, it, so so there is a, a cost and volume situation. Understood. Because for, for quite a while, manufacturers have actually lost money on every electric car they've sold, and particularly when the subsidies were were either eroded or taken away. Mm. So we've got we've got this horrible crossover, this transition period where they really need more volume to be able to get the prices down. Sure. And as soon as we get to that point, of course. Um, but of course, there are only you know it is only the wealthy countries that are able to look at this route you know your subcontinents yes. and so on yeah, are not going to be taking the volumes in the way in which they are the ICE uh, internal combustion engine products as well you know before we start talking about the recycling element where do you see electricity so electrification and transport because many would say it is really what we've talked about it's cars it's motorbikes e-bikes whatever you call it it's not going to be your aeroplanes it's not going to be your ships and is it going to be trains who knows you know, it's quite a, it's quite interesting where we are all because this is politically driven as well as the the industry. You know, you've got to look at what governments will say. Where do we invest to say, is it worth this amount of money for this amount of energy to move this amount of goods? And people are talking as you talked about hydrogen or, or other things. Do you see electrification batteries uh, as for transport really for us for our domestic use for you know the odd transit type vehicle things like that rather than for you know big mass shipping and planes and things like that uh, i believe that electric vehicles and electric transport in small scale that you describe will be very much uh, to the fore and i believe that hydrogen will take over around about the seven and a half ton payload and right. upwards um, just covering off the hydrogen. So hydrogen fuel cell uh, creates an awful lot of heat that has to be removed from the vehicle. So when you have a lorry or a bus or something like that, you've mm. got an awful lot of area to get an awful lot of air to do the cooling. When it comes down to a passenger car or an e-bike, something like that, you, it's very hard to, uh, to get anywhere near the right levels of cooling to get the heat rejection from that point of view. When it comes to the smaller items like EV cars, EV bikes, frankly, the amount of clean energy that we have, and particularly as an island that has wind, um, that has uh, uh, you know, renewables, basically, don't we? And the other uh, area that is being explored, but not perfected yet, because it's a very hostile area, is, of course, tidal. So, mm -hmm. you know, the one thing we do have is a, a tide that ebbs and flows 
uh, uh, twice in every 24 hours and capturing some of that energy will certainly be, in my opinion, to the fore in the next 15 to 20 years. So I, I think the transition to green energy, which we are already in some instances nearly 50% green energy, I genuinely believe. And of course, if you look at the technology of uh, you know, induction charging in motion, uh, which means that you know your Can car. Can you explain explain that to the listener? Yeah, sure. So, so there's a lot of good work been going on over the last 10, 12 years. On if you imagine just having a metal plate underneath your car, yep. a metal plate on your garage floor, and there's clearly there's a gap. The two won't touch. So there's a gap there of let's say seven or eight inches. Induction charging uh, means that you can make electricity go between the two plates without sparking. And induction charging in motion means that actually you can take energy whilst you're in motion. So imagine that same plate, a set of traffic lights, let's say, uh, or even in a fast lane, uh, sorry, even in a hard shoulder on a motorway, as an example. If you had an emergency and ran out of battery on the motorway, ah. there, could, there could even be these lanes where you go and actually as you ride over them on a tag type system, uh, your car uh, picks up charge. So all of these then take away the need for people that are living in high rise or haven't got access to street electricity. Uh, yep. It takes away the need and some of the anxiety around charging if you're in an inner city. So all of these great technologies are coming along and you know, the battery is certainly much greener than what we're doing at the current time with uh, but, fossil fuels. But, but is it much greener? Because this is always the thing that's trotted out. And, you know, as I said, I, I, I do believe in... You know, when I drive around the evening and, and in London, it's perfect. Like you said, charge it at night, absolutely fine. I can last a whole week, not a problem. But I do wonder, am I any, any cleaner? Because, you know, what is the truth about kind of the chemicals, the minerals, the rare earth elements that go into my battery compared to kind of what we're using? You know, the, the lifespan of these things, because we know we've had an automotive industry for more than 100 and odd years. So we know that an engine can last 20 30 years in a car and you know yes all that stuff going on about kind of what is cleaner buying a new car or just actually uh, you know using an old bit of machinery and you keep it going are you actually doing less damage so where do you sit on that regarding the the cleanliness of the electric battery okay so i'll uh, thank you for that i'll take those two key elements uh, separately and i'll start off with lifespan so with the 2022-2023 model years from the key manufacturers around the world, you'll find that the batteries should outlive the life of the body and framework of a car. And I know that there are many discussions going on where the consumer may be able to extract the battery at the end of the car's life and use it as some form of energy storage at home or at work so that there is a second use and second life for that uh, battery. I'll come on to the cleanliness of, of the manufacturing and the CO2 yep. footprint, um, because you're quite right. You know, there, there was a, a, you know, in the early days when a Nissan Leaf, for example, had, let's say, been built in Japan, uh, it's extractive, but as are fossil fuels, of course, but it's extractive by nature to build a battery. You need mm. the raw materials to build them. And then, of course, they were put on ships and sailed halfway around the, around the world to be sold. Correct. Yeah. Um, to then be told that you've got a clean car. <laughs> yeah, now, exactly. what's, what's actually happening is that, that manufacturing, um, we call it manufacturing in the car industry, but actually it's car assembly. And what's in reality happening is that there's a big push to have a lot more components manufactured and then assembled in the region of origin. 
So um, to put that in perspective, I believe it's uh, something like 55% of a car has to be built in the UK before we can now try and sell it to the States, for example. Uh, and I believe that figure is moving up uh, 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 a number of percentage points as each of these years goes on. So what we actually have is, is trying to uh, get more sourcing of raw materials uh, in the area of, of, of um, actual component manufacture and assemble. But, but sorry, Robin, can we actually do that? So can we get the materials we need for a battery, for a car to be built in, say, Sunderland or Derby in the areas of the UK? Uh, the answer is that we've got two gigafactories uh, confirmed to be being built uh, and commissioned during 2024 so far, which is obviously British Volt and Nissan. Yeah, yeah. And there's possibly another two, to my knowledge, here in the UK. So can we actually build them? Yes, we can. There's a bit of legislation because we'll talk about recycling in a moment. But when, yeah. we, recy when we recycle, you know, we can get the, the nickel, the cobalt, the manganese, the lithium, we can get all of that back again through our processes to reuse. And there is now legislation coming through to say that new batteries have to have an increasing amount of recycled materials right. um, for them to be able to be made new. So mm. if, if you've got end, so where this is headed, you could see is that you know, recyclers like ourselves with these types of processes are able to push the government on legislation and People like Warwick University are pushing the government to end up with a mandate of having at least 80, if not 90 percent in the future uh, of every new battery being made from recycled batteries or components of a similar nature. So um, it, that then truly does become circular. That then truly does bring the CO2 uh, footprint down. It, then the interesting question is, is here in the UK, can we deliver that? So we can deliver the manufacturing of the battery cells. Companies like ours can deliver the recycling. Um, companies like ours with our mining uh, assets, uh, ethical mining assets around the world that are focused on battery minerals, we can create the supply. However, here in the UK, a big, big debate going on at the moment is that we've got over 400 mines here in the UK that are all laying dormant and the taxpayers having to pay uh, to keep them as uh, clean as possible. Uh, but of course, inevitably, there is some leaching into the waterways. So I would suggest that whilst the government and industry has done a great job so far in building the eco-structure to deliver these batteries and recycle them, um, there is a big push needed on getting our resources from existing mines. I'm not talking about scarring the earth or creating new mines. There are mines that weren't viable 30 and 40 years ago that could and should be opened up again so that we get those raw materials from within the borders of our country. But, but and, what sort of mines are you talking about? You're not talking about coal mines, are you? Because I mean, you're talking no, about no, tin no, 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 no. You're talking about tin mines and things like that uh, in well, coal, are you? Lithium mines, cobalt mines. Uh, yeah, I didn't even and know we had all there. those. In yeah, you'll, you'll be amazing. staggered. You'll be wow. staggered. And of course, everyone you know, thinks uh, about this is in Africa. You know, they, everyone talks about yep. you know where people are going. You know, the, the pictures of young kids, and we all know that terrifying stuff that's going on. But yep. you're actually saying we have the resources here in mind. We have mines of lithium in this country. That we do, that and and you, if you just do a little, yeah. If you do a little, well, worse than that, the taxpayer. You know, if you do your research, the taxpayer is paying hundreds of millions of pounds a year to wow. keep these 400 or so mines, and they, they 400 or so will cover coal all the way through to gold, effectively. 
these mines are sitting there and because they weren't viable 30 or 40 years ago, the government's had to pick them up to maintain them. And it's costing us, the taxpayers, um, you know, hundreds of millions a year to keep them dormant. And, you know, uh, it wouldn't be unreasonable to assume a few of them are leaching into the waterways. So there's actually a bigger environmental problem. So, you know, there's grounds, there are many grounds to look and say, in my opinion, to look and say, you know, what is right underneath our noses? And can we fix uh, uh, an environmental problem without scarring the earth anymore by going down and mining again and reopening these mines? Uh, yeah. and, and then when they are truly spent, close them down properly so that they are uh, correctly protecting the environment as they go forward. So, so that's sitting underneath our noses. And, uh, and then, of course, we've got our recycling side, so, you know, which is very exciting. You know, we're, we're first to market. We've got early market advantage. And we're bringing a new capability to the UK because you know, these lithium-ion batteries are pretty nasty things if they, if they go bang, uh, mm. in fairness. And, uh, uh, you know, which I don't want to upset people holding a handheld telephone or a laptop on their desk. But, uh, you yeah, know, they, they are not. Well, we know they, they get warm. Everyone knows their phones get warm. Their, ba- their laptops can get warm. We know these things. We know we've heard stories of this stuff. Let's, let's just talk about this side of it, because this is a very important part of where we are all going. So for us to reach net zero, we have to cut, obviously. But the thing that I'm really annoyed about that is, is, is we don't talk enough about waste. We don't talk about enough about kind of protecting, like you just said, not scarring the earth again, protecting the resources. So with a battery now, say say a battery from, I don't know, 10 years ago from an electric car, how much of that is recyclable today? Can we use it? Uh, and, and, you know, what sort of things can be taken out of it? You said you can extract all of the nickel and, and all of the lithium. Is that right? Yeah, we can. So our process, which opens in Wolverhampton in about four weeks' time, we put 100% of what goes in the front end of it, we actually take out uh, through the process. So in each of the, there there are five key chemistries of lithium-ion batteries. One of our unique selling points is that we can put any combination of any of the five in the hopper at the front end of our process, and our machine will deal with the potential explosion and fire uh, hazard and then bring, separate out the plastics, the metals, and separate out also the a little bit of electrolyte that Sydney's needs that's very expensive. And our process will purify the electrolyte to such an extent that it can go back to the battery manufacturer. Can but you the, sort of the, explain to us what it is? It sounds like it sounds sort of, you know, a uh, Willy Wonka machine that you, you yep, put it in is. a battery in the front <laughs> and at well, the end you get all little lovely packets. So what is it? Is it like a big kind of um, sort of uh, compactor? Just give us a visual picture of what this thing is. Uh, well, we haven't described it in our marketing as Willy Wonka, but uh, that's... There <laughs> you can have that one for free. <laughs> <laughs> Probably a good starting point anyway. <laughs> uh, so anyway, so yeah, the, the, uh, so it's a shredder, um, I think is, is as right. far as I would like to go. So we, we have a very special front end process that enables us to take the batteries in any state of charge, in right. any combination of chemistry, chemistry. So whether they turn up as a laptop battery, an e-bike battery, oh. uh, an EV car, or something from the airport, for example, that's been running on uh, big batteries at the airport, you know, the, the tug machines, that sort of thing. Yeah, we can put anything in any combination in the front end. 
And this is what makes us uh, 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 pretty unique on that front. And we're able to process about 8,300 tonnes per year on a single ship, uh, which gives us about 5,000 tonnes of what's called a black mass. So once you've separated your plastics, you've taken off the electrolyte, which is yep. the fluid, you're then left with something called a black mass. And of that black mass, uh, you've got nickel, cobalt, manganese and lithium. So it's, so, all the me- it's all the metals inside it, basically. They're the key. They're the key metals that you'd want to go back round and go back right. in. Uh, yeah, be clean enough and pure enough to go back into remaking another battery to create the truly circular economy. But let me let me just tell you before before all of this happens, when car batteries arrive with us, we actually have a process to check them and recertify them for second use as energy storage. So if they're suitable and not damaged, they're able to be recertified so that we, we don't even crunch them. But if oh. they're not, not suitable, then we will recycle. So we either repurpose or we recycle. And that's the whole mantra that we have effectively to, to make sure that we are circular and maximizing you know, the, the rare earth commodities and, and the minerals that we've got absolutely to, to, to their maximum. I mean, that's fantastic because that is the thing I suppose that most of us concerned with is that you know it's part of my french you know we spent the 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 years digging up some shit to put into our cars and then we spend the next 50 years digging up different shit to put into our cars which is damaging the earth even more and and this idea that you've got of the ability to say repurpose and then reuse i mean obviously you know it's brilliant you guys are doing it i'm hoping that other people are doing this around the world. How, how big an industry could this be? How, how confident are you that in maybe 40, 50 years time, let's take 2050, all right, the target year of net zero, that we will be in a world where, where we have batteries, pretty much their life is infinite because we can, we can stop polluting the earth in terms of once we've taken it, we just keep reusing that resource rather than doing it. Do you, do you think that's a kind of possible future? Not quite. I think it will be between 80 and 90 percent there. Personally, I think 100 percent of that uh, will be pushing it too far because by yep. default, you know, you've also got the uh, you know, there's responsible people and there's not so responsible of people that, that will still throw something into landfill or put it in an incinerator yeah. or do something horrendous with it. So, um, you know, but 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 I believe that for, for those that are keen to make this happen and, and engage in the repurpose recycling. And let's be fair, a lot of the younger generation are very, very focused on this. So oh, you know, they are, that, yeah. by, by, 20, by 2050, we've got a whole range of people with a mindset of desire to make this happen as well. So, you know, there's every chance that it will be between 80 and 90% would be my, my opinion on that, looking at how, you know, the, the techniques of, of repurposing and re, uh, recycling coming on because it's not just us i mean every other sector and even into pyrolysis of tires and all that mm, sort of thing where they're yeah. turning a tire back to oil and then yes. that oil is, is is by mandate having to go back in small quantities into the main pipeline for example so you know it's 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 legislation and fine uh, you know there needs to be fines because companies and people won't invest unless the fine in a lot of cases unless the fine is bigger than the benefit of Of course, yeah. Um, So, yeah, there is a commercial angle, political angle uh, as well to play into this. But certainly if the desire is there, I believe the technologies will be 
commercially viable there as well because you know, what we don't want to do is suddenly find we're having to subsidize everything to make it happen no, um and, and, and there is a viability to it as well so that's you know it's equally important because whilst people are viable they continue to invest in r d uh, and continue to invest in plant in people in knowledge sharing uh, and, you know, they're all the key elements of the COP26 to, to bring that back around uh, full circle as well. Yeah. Um, two cu- couple of questions before we end. So um, where do you think we are? I mean, we've, we've, we've had COP, I was there. We've, we've had a lot of kind of, you know, the recent pressure with energy prices making people go, well, are we doing too much of this green stuff? Is net zero, you know, possible even? And shouldn't we think about, you know, just sorting ourselves out now? And yet, on the other hand, you know, I, I obviously <laughs> runs under Future Net Zero, I believe in it, but I, I, I can see the innovation here, the Faraday Battery Project, the yep. stuff you're talking about, you know, scientists, young kids who are working in interesting fields, you know, our, our grid system changing, our, yep. you know, DNOs becoming DSOs, we're going to have local peer-to-peer trading, the idea that my, my EB could earn me money at night by putting power. These are things that are yep. happening here. Your company there, for example, what you're doing at Technology Minerals, you know, the, the sort of innovative science. Do you think that Britain, particularly in this, you know, Brexit era, do you know Britain's got a real kind of something to say on this, that we could be really at the forefront of all this battery stuff? Because as I said, the battery is going to be our power for the next foreseeable future. Are we, are we you know, decent sized players in this field? We certainly can be, um, you know, where people in Europe, for example, will unite the whole of Europe, then that's a pretty big powerhouse, of course, just purely by volume. Uh, but I believe that in the technology uh, forefront, you know, engineering in Britain is still great um, as long as we use it. Uh, and certainly lockdown uh, has encouraged people to use uh, British design yeah. and build, as indeed we have done. Mm-hmm. Uh, and chose to do so yes I, I think Britain is there at the forefront you only have to go and see the great work that's being done at Warwick University and other universities around the country to see that the taxpayers money has been well spent on getting us to the forefront we have a solid battery eco structure in my opinion if you look again at much of the research that Warwick has done over over a number of years and get this raw material supply sorted We've got the recycling capabilities, and I genuinely believe that there is a great future. And, you know, we, we haven't really popped our head over the parapet, but we've got interest from all around the world in what we're doing, uh, whether that's gigafactories, whether that's car automotive companies, um, you know, because the race is on for them as well. You know, the, 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 the Chinese car sector has captured around 80% of the world's supply of lithium. So that's leaving the rest of the world to, to <laughs> yeah. scrabble over 20%. So anybody that's got any mechanism to, to help supply, um, you know, and, and the forecast, the forecast at the moment um, from various sectors is that recycling batteries in the way in which we're doing at the moment um, is in the relatively near term likely to supply 22% of the required raw materials to, uh, uh, to produce the, the, the batteries. Now, the, the counter to that is 78% still need to be extracted until we yeah. get to a better recycling level. But sure. the point I'm making to you is... No, you're already green, fifth there. Yeah, absolutely. I yeah, get it. So, so greenwash, in our case, is being stripped back. 
we're a company doing some doing, as there are many others doing the doing. So, you know, th there are those riding on the greenwash and, and, and using, uh, you know, waxing lyrical. But there's an awful lot of good going on in Britain right now. It makes you feel very proud, frankly. And, yeah. you know, and, and with our uh, work ethic, as long as we haven't lost too much of it through lockdown, but with our work ethic here in, in the UK, um, you know, I, we really are well placed, in my opinion. Yeah, even if we have to stop at four o'clock for a cup of tea, hey, that's the main thing. <laughs> <laughs> and my last question to you, you, know, you sound very passionate about this. You're a man who's been in, in motorsport, you know, you've got family. But um, what do you hope will be the, the legacy of, for what we're doing now for future generations? Because I do think we've reached a tipping point. I, I, I agree with you that, you know, people, uh, you know, the younger ones will want things more. They're demanding more things that I certainly wouldn't have when I was growing up in the 80s. I wouldn't have even thought about it. Um, sure. Why are you so passionate about all this? Um, I've always been passionate about it. Um, so, for example, in, and this is going to sound very old now, but in 1987, uh, I worked with B BMW and FINA as the, uh, as the works racing driver to bring unleaded fuel into motorsport and into the UK. So, you know, even as far back as that, I've had a, uh, a desire to try and make things greener and better uh, for, uh, you know, as best we can. And you could argue that motorsport doesn't do that, but yeah, exactly. I, would, I, 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 I would argue that the technologies that come from it are, are continue to drive change on safety, on health, uh, whilst yes. in transport, yeah. uh, on how to get efficiencies from aerodynamics to to internal combustion engines. So you know, if you look at the science behind all of these things, rather than the fact that you know, there's guys doing 200 miles an hour around a track, uh, there's an awful lot of, uh, there's a huge benefit coming from it. And that's why countries around the world want Formula One, uh, their country to be a destination because it helps retain uh, you know, young, bright people coming out of universities if they've got something to hook onto. It helps road safety. It reduces the pressure on NHS through road traffic accidents. And, you know, places like Spain have really benefited from their investment. Uh, you know, when they invested all those years back in Alonso and putting in the, uh, the Spanish circuit, it took youngsters off of mopeds and motorbikes into, into cars. It took old cars off the road, which meant that if people crashed, they had a better chance of, of, of no or less injury so yeah and uh, as well as all of the tourism and stuff that goes with it so there, there is a huge huge benefit uh, associated with that particular sport in my opinion but i would say that wouldn't i the work you're doing now do you hope it leave a good legacy that leaves this planet a little bit better oh very much so 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 that would be the legacy is is to leave you know leave the world a better place than i found it um, which sounds, you know, you know, there are a lot of sound bites in there, aren't yeah. there? But, um, you, you know, it, 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 it is. And the reason I'm excited is, is that, that you know, as I've got older, you realise that, that, that these things really are driven by, by financial viability. Absolutely. And, I think, and I think the thing that excites me the most is that this is mostly affordable from within the borders of our own country to start off with and globally. And as time permits, I do believe that the slightly less well-off well continents will be able to follow suit when the cost of these items go down through volumes increasing. And so I, I genuinely, as a person, I'm really excited by it and uh, you know, can't, wait to, uh, can't wait to see it evolve. And, and, and I think you know, Britain is a great place. The, the government, of, of, uh, forget the politics, but a government has 
put a stake in the ground uh, yeah. and said by certain timelines we want certain performance and you know what as the uk we normally rally to achieve those deadlines yeah. and that's one of the beauties about being in this country and frankly that's why formula one has got so many formula one teams in yeah. this country is it right. somehow somewhere our engineers and our teams of people all the way across the spectrum of our employee scope somehow we all get there and it's it's a great place to to live great place to be and yeah really upbeat about it oh my god that was like an advert i loved it there you go <laughs> <laughs> didn't intend it that way didn't intend it that way. well listen robin thank you so much for joining us on the net hero podcast i do think the work you're doing and your company's doing is is, is excellent and uh, good luck with the opening of the factory very soon thank you so much good to speak to you great chat there with martin and you know i have to say it really is one of those things you've got to look at we as a society must start to look at what we do with these materials and i was very surprised at that that the batteries might go on longer than the car uh you, you probably all know that my travails in my car but maybe that'll be the case and it'll uh, have a new life heating my house in a few years time uh thanks for listening please do subscribe to the podcast and as i said earlier on the Big Zero Show is coming in June. Register now for a few free space. Uh, catch you next week. You've been listening to the Net Hero podcast with Summit Bose from Future Net Zero. Visit our platform for all things Net Zero. And if you or your business is doing great things on the path to Net Zero and want to be featured on the podcast, email nethero at futurenetzero.com. Follow us on social media. FutureNetZero.com. Better business, better planet.